peeps, you have arrived at Next Level Radio. Before we get into the goodness and sweetness of today's episode, we want to highlight our very important sponsors, and Iron Chapel being the first. The Iron Chapel providing you the best in strength and conditioning for the athlete, the aspiring athlete, the ex-athlete, and everybody in between. General population to professional athletes, we have it for everybody. Here at the Iron Chapel, if it's one-on-one, if it's personal training, if it's group training, whatever you need, we do have a spot for you. So you can find us at the Iron Chapel on Facebook, Instagram, or you can DM me at at coach underscore workman. And then Nutridyne. Nutridyne has been a long-standing sponsor of the podcast, giving you guys 20% off for DMing us and getting your consult in the books. This allows you to have the best in medical supplementation, allowing you to get to the underlying issues of disease and elevate your performance. So you can DM us at, at coach underscore Wortman to get your 20% off for just being a listener of the podcast. And that is our sponsors. So what are we going to talk about today? We had a absolute landmark of a congressional hearing yesterday about cryptocurrencies. And if you know me, I am invested in the cryptocurrency world, but I'm also an advocate. And I truly believe in the power that they can have for the people, for their financial markets, for everything under the sun as it relates to finance. And there's so many different things. There's so many different avenues for cryptocurrency and more specifically the blockchain and what it can do for finance. And so today we're going to go over what happened. What can we expect out of this? Is there going to be regulation coming down the pipeline? We'll give you the answers here at Next Level Radio. So this was the first ever congressional hearing on cryptocurrencies. And it was great to have these CEOs and CFOs to get in front of the, pan- in front of the Congress and answer any and all questions they may have. Any and all congressmen and women had five minutes to grill these CEOs, and I truly believe that this panel, this lineup, did an amazing, amazing job. So, who was on the panel? Who were the present people in the cryptocurrency panel? And I've been trying to say this guy's last name for a long time, and I can't get it. So, I'm going to call him just Charles. Charles is the president and CEO of Paxos, a major player in the cryptocurrency world. Jeremy Allure. He is the CEO of USDC, or Circle, and he was under a lot of scrutiny from the Congress, and he did an amazing job of showing the power and the ability of stablecoins, and Circle being the stablecoin that has done everything right. They've tried to become an FDIC-insured bank. They've done everything. They aren't the tether that everybody is scrutinizing. So then you had Sam Bankman-Fried, Um, He is the CEO of FTX. If you're in the crypto world, you've probably used FTX at some point. Um, Brian Brooks, the people's people, CEO of Bitfury, ex-OCC official and ex-employee of Coinbase. His name will be coming up a lot in this podcast. And then some speculation around this, but Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, was supposed to be in the panel, however, Alicia Haas, CFO of Coinbase, did an amazing job of 
reiterating the positive aspects of Coinbase for the Congress. Um, she did come under a lot of scrutiny when it came to transaction fees and deposits and withdrawals and stuff like that, but that's the minuscule stuff that we'll get into. So what happened? And what we found out is Brian Brooks is a boss, dude. Brian Brooks is the people's coach of crypto. He is the person that is most developed, has this intellectual knowledge above 99% of people. And he was able to go to bat for us, the crypto user and the crypto exchanges as a whole and the blockchain technology as a whole, to be honest. So right off the bat, we get into, you're not going to be able to see the video, but you're going to hear the audio. We get into just some questions. Okay, and you'll you'll see from both sides of the aisle, both Democrat and Republican, they fall into two categories. Just absolute blind arrogance and minimal understanding of blockchain. And you'll you'll see the bipartisan, you'll see how Democratic and Republican can pull in certain directions of their beliefs in finance their beliefs in um, cryptocurrency. And it's it's sad to see because the ones that have broke out of that red versus blue can really see cryptocurrency for what it is. A, a solution to our ever-crumbling financial system, cross-border payment systems. And uh, so the people that have been able to set aside their political party and look at it from a basis of just another financial market help a lot in this scenario, but there always are those black sheep that just can't get over it. And then this gets us back to term limits for Congress. It's, there's, there's people running this country that are 70, 60, 70 years old that have no idea what cryptocurrency is. They just wrote their first check last week, and they're trying to make rules and laws around an asset class that is very, very new to even the younger generation. It's asinine. So right off the bat, we're going to go over a few different highlights that I think capture a good amount of what happened. Having said this, the Congress will be in front of another group of people that are cryptocurrency uh, doubters or the negative aspects of the cryptocurrency. And that's going to be just as important as this one here. So right off the bat, we have Mr. McHenry. He is North Carolina's 10th district congressman. And I'm going to give you kind of an outline and he talks about dumbing down the definitions of cryptocurrency of web three of the metaverse for the Congress so that we can have a solidified definition, a solidified level foundation of what cryptocurrency is. And that is what you'll hear now. Level set here for policymakers. So originally the internet was a read only format in essence, we're consuming information. And then there's additional layers that we place on. It became much more interactive. But counterintuitively, much more interactive, but much more centralized in Web 1, Web 2. What we're hearing now is Web 3. Policymakers need to understand the nature of Web 3. This is a hearing about a component of Web 3. Now, along those lines, what are the characteristics that defined Web 1 and Web 2? Mr. McHenry, thank you very much for that question. I think that's critical to understanding what we're... This is Mr. Brian Brooks, the man, the myth, the legend. And he's going to give you Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3, and then we'll come back and discuss that. We're all trying to build here. <clears throat> so the characteristic of Web 1, if people remember their original AOL account, 
was an ability to look in a curated walled garden at a set of content that was not interactive but was presented to you on AOL the way that Time Magazine used to show you the articles they wanted you to see inside of their magazine. Just you could see it on a screen. The innovation of Web 2 was that suddenly you could not only read content, but you could also write content. This is when the blogosphere became a, a big thing. People remember this from the late 90s, the early 2000s. <clears throat> the reason for the centralization of the internet, of course, was that all of that activity was being monetized by a very small number of companies. Facebook, as the chairwoman, as chairwoman mentions, Google, and two or three other companies. What makes Web3 different is the ability to own the actual network. And that's what crypto assets themselves represent, is an ownership stake in an underlying network. So when you hear people talk about, for example, layer one tokens, what they mean is, this is your reward for providing the ledger maintenance services, the computing power to the network that on web one and two was done by Google, right? So now people in my hometown of Pueblo, Colorado can actually own the Ethereum network, but they can't. So he is going over what is web one, web two, and web three. Web one, we have this, uh, what he called is a walled garden. They are giving you information that you cannot interact with. You can just see it. It's a digital aspect of what we what we seen in the world, the newspapers, all this, you can now look and read. Web two, we can now interact and create content. Okay, so now we can be able to create something such as a blog, a podcast, whatever. But now that data is held by the big, big people: Twitter, Coinbase, or excuse me, Twitter, Facebook, Google. Web three. Now you can have an interactive chunk. You can own part of that network. And what I want to tell you is there's a huge difference between a network and a company. That is the huge discrepancy in Web 2 and Web 3. If I owned a chunk of a company, I know now own a security. But if I own a chunk of a network, I now just own a native token. I do not own a security. That's the big thing to think about here is the difference between that company and that network. Can't own the internet. That's owned by Google and a few other companies. That's what the project of crypto is all about, is allowing people to directly own the networks that are, have native assets that are supporting it. And that's the nature of decentralization, where the token holders are the people who control the asset, okay, so not the Google. Token holders, for, for our language here on the Hill, those are digital assets, right? Which are the keys to open up the ledger for you to participate. Right. So describe to us how those digital assets fit into this internet revolution, Web3. <clears throat> so, so, so the concept is that you have sort of application layer tokens and you have protocol layer tokens. So if I'm an owner of Bitcoin, let's say that I'm a miner of Bitcoin, somebody who actually creates Bitcoin. The Bitcoin is the reward I receive for doing the work to keep the network operational. And that allows me to own a piece of the Bitcoin blockchain. Or take Ethereum, which is easier to understand. The Ether token represents an ownership stake in the network, but on top of that network are all kinds of apps that get built on the network, much like the apps on your phone. So now he talks about application versus network layer tokens. So now I can own a piece of the Ethereum network, but then different applications that open on top of Ethereum or an ERC-20 token, I can own in their native token. So I'm still on the Ethereum blockchain, the Ethereum network, but I can own 
Ethereum network, I can own Ethereum network application tokens. So you have to realize that this is a whole different asset class in itself. You now have the ability to own the network instead of having your data sold on the network because we really found out quickly with Facebook, Instagram, YouTube that our data is very valuable and it can be sold at a very high price. Web3 does not allow that to happen anymore. That is the big difference in what we're talking about here. Depend on the underlying network existing that lets the phone operate. And so people will make judgments about which network is likely to win, and they will invest in the tokens in that network much the same way you might invest in Google stock because you think Google is going to scale access to the original internet. The difference being here, you can vote on what happens in the future of a proof-of-stake network, for example. You can get rewarded through a proof-of-work token for maintaining a ledger on something like Bitcoin. But the real message here is that what happens on the decentralized internet is decided by the investors versus what happens on the main internet is decided by Twitter, Facebook, Google, and a small number. So instead of having a small number of people decide exactly what happens on the network, we now have the investors. It is decentralized because now we have more votes. Number of other companies. Okay, so getting this this layer of on digital assets uh, that develops and 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 I think when you hear about all of the problems, this is very interesting right here. I want you to listen very closely to what he's saying about what happens with the human psychology with new asset classes, what we tend to do with new asset classes. Problems of different big tech companies, the importance of an owner-controlled network becomes clear. Okay, owner-controlled network rather than a cooperative, right? And and thinking in those terms, right? So if you're not a part of management, you're not making a decision in Web 2. If you are a participant in the network, you're you're making uh, you're cooperating in the making of those decisions. Exactly okay. right. So I ask this not to be insulting to the panel, but to have a level set here so we have an understanding of what we're talking about. This is not simply <clears throat> about you on this panel. It is about trillions of dollars of assets that did not exist before Satoshi wrote his white paper 13 years ago. It's about $3 trillion in in notional value at this stage around the development of a whole new range, whole new suite of technology that will be developed across the globe, whether or not the United States embraces it and wants to compete or if it's pushed offshore. So as policymakers, we need to understand what we're talking about here. This is a small panel, important as you may be, a small panel about the discussion about Web3. And so with that, Madam Chair, thank you uh, for having this here. So when Brian Brooks was at his uh, OCC chair, he was um, talking about when he was going through lawyer school that when banks went from paper ledger recording of every transaction to computer-based, those banks were sued because, for over that. So we look back now and we were like, why would that be a suable offense? Why is that something that they did? Because it was something new. We are going on this internet of many, this different clouds. So they didn't want the transaction to be on the cloud. So they got sued for that. Then when he was in also in lawyer school, their operating officials over all the lawyers said, no, you cannot use email because it's in the network. It's in the cloud. Sounds asinine now. But the United States cannot embrace that we do not understand 
that this is just a new asset class, that technology drives innovation, that technology increases the well-being of the human. So we have to look as crypto as just another new asset, not just this black sheep in the market. Our next, our next uh, congresswoman is very uh, popular, um, very, uh, uh, she's kind of a celebrity in on the hill. So we're going to go over kind of what she says. She has like a little bit negative aspect to it, but I want to highlight both sides of this token, literally. So we have AOC as she describes the one-to-one of USD and how this can affect our traditional banking. Oh, to the heart of the matter. Crypto, as we know, is growing industry. It's rising in market value from 500 billion last year to more than 3 trillion as of uh, November of, of this year, 2021. Um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, advocates, proponents of the cryptocurrency industry that discuss the creation of a new digital, creation of new digital currencies, I should say, um, and building safer, more inclusive system outside of the traditional financial sector. Um, but I kind of want to explore this uh, assertion a little bit more. Uh, Mr. Allaire, a, a substantial portion of the buying and selling of cryptocurrencies is done with stable coins, correct? A, a significant amount is traded with stable coins, yes. It's about 75%. Uh, does that sound about right to you? Uh, I don't have the data in front of me, but it does sound okay. roughly correct. Uh, and these stable coins are designed to be backed by certain reserve assets, whether they are primarily USD um, or safe, highly liquid cash substitutes. Essentially, a coin to be stable in value <laughs> so that people can kind of um, use it in a larger world of crypto where other coins could perhaps be a little bit more volatile in their value. So she's talking about USD having um, backing one-to-one with the U.S. dollar or um, very highly liquid assets so that if somebody wanted their money back, they could give that back. So this gives them the one-to-one pegging of USD to USDC. And so she is talking about what can happen on the back end of this. I, I can certainly speak to the design of USDC. I, I certainly I can't really speak to others. Mm-hmm. So yes, USDC is designed as a payment instrument under electronic money you know, law in the United States, and so it's uh, you know cash and short duration U.S. government treasuries, uh, which is the underlying instruments for the yes. stored value. In fact, your firm recently announced a transition to one-to-one backing in U- dollars of USD coin after. It was found that only 60% of the coin was backed uh, by cash or cash. Cryptocurrency industry, hypothetically, lost its ability to use stable coins as a bridge to trade in, uh, to trade in and out of dollars uh, tomorrow. Would that cause a significant shift? You know, it, it seems as though it would not be able to work the way that it uh, does currently, correct? Well, I think, I think you know, a primary reason why stablecoins are, are so powerful is that they're, they're a superior form of settlement. Um, and so the existing banking system moves slowly. Uh, funds take several days for them to move, and there are significant fees, and the access to that can be limited, whereas blockchains um, operate continuously, uh, and settlement happens at the speed of the Internet. And so um, I think it is important that uh, payments and settlement in this, this new, these new forms of internet financial products and services can operate at the speed of the internet. So I think it's essential, in fact. I see. Thank you. Um, and so, lastly, what would you say to some of the folks 
who are listening to uh, what some folks are saying, not just here on this panel, but in the larger world. Um, so the folks that say, what do you say to the folks that say, basically, this doesn't seem like a new financial system per se, but really an extension um, or perhaps expansion of our present one? So going over this, she's talking about the one-to-one pegging um, to the U.S. dollar for USDC. And USDC or Circle has been completely and 100% transparent in being a stable coin. Tether, USDT, on the opposite end, has not. Tether will not disclose where they have their commercial papers, meaning their loans out to other markets um, so that they can have that one-to-one pegging. Do they actually have one US dollar to one Tether? And a lot of people speculate that is no. With USDC, they have been 100% transparent. They've tried to become an FDIC-insured bank. So they've tried to go through that process and nobody will allow them to. And so AOC is lending um, an important point, a very important point, because Tether has been so speculative and so shady with everything that's going on in the crypto markets that if this wasn't a true one-to-one backing with the investor's confidence that it's a one-to-one backing, couldn't this crumble the entire market? And it possibly could. If Tether does not expose where their loans are and where their backing is, This could be very bad for the market, but it could also establish USDC as the crypto token for a stablecoin. And so it's very important to know that USDC has been completely transparent, has shown where their loans are, has shown where their backing is. So AOC is lending and picking at Tether because Tether was brought to this congressional hearing and they did not show up. So Circle has been 150% transparent with everything that they've done, and that's why they've been trying to dive into and vet Circle as a company so that we can have the confidence as investors that this is a one-to-one backing, that if something happens, I can get my U.S. dollars back. So that is very important, and this is a very important topic that AOC brings up, and it allows us the security that Circle is doing exactly what they were supposed to do. And then we get to our next Congress person here, and um, this is Mr. Ted Budd, North Carolina's 13th district. He is a cryptocurrency advocate per se, but he brings up quite possibly the most powerful explanations and conversations on this entire crypto panel. And so we're going to have his discussion with Mr. Brooks and I want you to really listen to this and we will kind of break it down for you as it transpires. Fear is that this regulatory state, it's going to crack down on an industry that the regulators, they really don't understand yet. And it's going to force the next generation of financial tech to be created outside of our country. And well, we can't let that happen. So Mr. Brooks, it's good to see you again. Uh, Where do companies draw the line and say that enough is enough with this anti-innovation, quote, regulation by enforcement, uh, and then just decide to take their industry elsewhere to another country? So the SEC has completely overstepped its bounds in trying to regulate different types of companies within the cryptocurrency space. And so he's asking the question, where is this line drawn 
where companies are going to say, screw it, I'm not going to try to innovate within the United States. I'm going to go elsewhere. Driving and leaving innovation, opportunity, employment, everything that comes with the cryptocurrency markets. And Mr. Brooks gives a very great answer. Where's the line? Well, Mr. Butt, it's good to see you and thank you for that question. What I would say is in some aspects of the industry, the line is super clear. There are some products that are legal in other countries and are just not legal here. So I take some of the investment products we've talked about earlier today, for example, exchange-traded funds. One of the things that makes crypto risky is that consumers may not understand the difference between one token and another token. And so they may want to diversify much as I own an S&P 500 mutual fund. We don't allow that in the United States. We do allow it in Canada. We allow it in Germany, Singapore, Portugal, and a number of other places. So So he's talking, why can't we offer an ETF in the crypto markets? Because what an ETF does is it diversifies you amongst all different cryptos and allows you to get exposure to the market without the volatility of the market. And so just like an S&P 500 fund, this would be an ETF fund for the crypto markets. And what he's saying is that's going to help bring less volatility in the market for people. And this is important for investor protection for people that are trying to expose their money to that market. But in the end thing, in the end game, you're the investor, you're exposing yourself to those markets. And so it's very important to know that. But what Mr. Brooks is saying is that this ETF can bring the volatility that we would uh, more be comfortable with in these markets. And so this is a very important point that he brings up that is going to offshore all these companies. If we can't offer that, these companies are going to go elsewhere, Singapore, Germany, Canada, okay? Oh, if you're a developer of those products, there's no fuzzy line. It's super clear. You can't do that here. So you have to go abroad, okay? There are some other places. Can can you say why we can't do that here? Sure. It's because the Securities and Exchange Commission has consistently refused to approve products that other G20 nations have approved. So we're behind the curve? Unquestionably. So given your previous experience running the OCC, I'd love to hear your perspective on where a regulator, where a regulator's authority begins and ends. Remember the joke earlier this year that everything's infrastructure? Well, um, it seems like Chairman Gensler thinks that everything is a digital asset that he can regulate. Uh, he cites the Howey and the Reeves test without providing any other explanations. So, Mr. Brooks, what are we missing? Because Chairman Gensler clearly doesn't see a limit to his regulatory authority in this area. Well, Congressman, one thing I learned um, running you know, my, my little agency is that the U.S., and this is not specific to crypto, the U.S. is sort of unique among the developed countries in our... This is the most important line to listen to in the entire podcast right here. Our fragmented approach to regulation. So, so when I hear people talk about the idea that we need one regulator for crypto... I would say we should first have one regulator for banks, but we have three of them. Or if you're an investment bank, five of them. So that's inherent in the system that we've got. What I say to that is the last thing we need to do is add another regulator to a system that's already got dozens of regulators. What we need to do instead is have parity for crypto activity along with traditional finance. If I'm a crypto lending platform, I should probably be regulated by the FDIC. If I'm a crypto trading platform, I should probably be regulated by the CFTC and SEC. But somehow we treat crypto because it's new as different from everything else. And I'm going to argue that crypto is just a step function improvement in the system. We already have a regulatory system. The laws are super clear how it works. 
But there's something about crypto that scares people. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because it's new. But I remember in my banking law class when banks were first allowed to use computers to keep ledgers, people sued over that at the time. I remember when I was a second-year lawyer and we got email, and the ABA said lawyers couldn't use email because it would travel over this mysterious network of computers. These all seem ridiculous today, but it seems like we haven't really learned the underlying lesson, which is technology usually advances human flourishing. We have a regulatory system. Let's use it. The most important thing. We look at innovation as something inherently negative that we need to regulate. But Brian Brooks mentions in this statement that he thinks if you're an exchange, you should have FDIC. If you are a uh, lending program, you need to be oversought by the SEC, that you have to do these things to regulate crypto. But instead, we think that we have to have this blanket approach to everything that is, say, an investment. And so Brooks mentions what I had mentioned earlier. Banks got sued for electronic ledgers. Lawyers were told don't use email because it's going to be nefarious. Those all seem asinine today, but the United States still wants to not learn its lesson and regulate something that is a whole different asset class. That is the most important thing of this entire congressional hearing. And lastly, we're going to go over Mr. Sherman from San Fernandino Valley. Um, Quite possibly the most misguided congressman on this in this hearing um you can you can hear his arrogance his lack of knowledge in what they're talking about with crypto but i also want to agree with him on some things that some of these coins need to be regulated some of these what would be considered shit coins to be gone to dispose to disappear um, but then we also talk about his arrogance, um, not knowing about how crypto can be used even right now today in 2021. So we're going to go over that to, uh, to close out the podcast. Crypto is many different things. Cryptocurrency is an incredibly volatile investment that aspires to be a currency that might displace or at least compete with the dollar. A stable coin aspires to be incredibly stable and is tied to the dollar. What they share is a culture, a vibe, a stick-it-to-the-man moniker, a belief that somehow this is new and hip and an attack on the powers of society. But the fact is that the ad... The, The advocates of crypto represent the powers in our society. Uh, um, The powers in our society on Wall Street and in Washington have spent millions and are trying to make billions or trillions in the crypto world. These include Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Visa, BlackRock, Citadel, Musk, and Zuckerberg, not to mention the CEOs that are before us here today. Uh, Everyone before us today is a crypto advocate. We will at some point hear from the crypto critics. We won't hear from CEOs. We'll hear from academics with their pencils and pens. 
Today we hear from the CEOs with their lobbyists, their PACs, and their power. And we wonder why we won't be able to protect investors. Um, the regulators need to listen to this hearing very carefully. With all the money and power on one side, we will not be able to pass meaningful legislation. Don't cop out and say, well, you're not going to do anything until we pass meaningful legislation. And if you wonder about where the power is, Zuckerberg had to come here himself and sit there. Brian Armstrong sent his number two. And Tether doesn't bother to show up at all. So we talk about Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, was supposed to be at this hearing. He sent Mrs. Haas his number two. And then he talks about Tether not even showing up to the congressional hearing. That is a problem. Tether is a problem. And that's why USDC has been completely transparent. That's why I use, as an investor, USDC. But th that is a problem that I agree with Mr. Sherman. Zuckerberg had to get grilled. Zuckerberg had to show up and get grilled for what he had done with his company. And Brian Armstrong sends number two. There could be some reasoning behind this, um, some excuse behind this. But he does bring up that good point. But from here on out... I do not agree with he, what he's saying. Zuckerberg did not have a day in the park. He did not enjoy it, but he had to come. Armstrong didn't, and Tether ain't here at all. Now, the number one threat to crypto currency is crypto. Bitcoin could be displaced by Ether, which could be displaced by Dodge, which could be displaced by Hamster Coin. And then there's Cobra Coin. And what could Mongo's coin do to crypto coin. In the area of fiat currency, the dollar will always be more important than the, Euro, than the Uruguayan peso, and the Uruguayan peso is not a joke. There will always be an Uruguay, and the Uruguayan peso will always have some value. Will Mongo's coin always have a value? I don't know. I just made it up. It's a joke. Although I said that about hamster coin, and then I found out there really was a hamster coin. Um, that uh, is something that in the cryptocurrency markets that... Uh, we do have to go away from the, the shit coins, these altcoins that have no use case. We talk about that in Next Level Crypto. We need a use case behind this network, not company, network. We need something that it can accomplish in our traditional finance. But he calls it Dogecoin, Mongo's coin, crypto coin. He doesn't know anything about the, the actual use case of crypto. He's just looking up names and trying to make a pre-made speech for this congressional hearing. This is where it gets interesting. This is where he actually makes an inherent flaw that he has no idea what he's talking about. It's not fair to compare fiat currency's current system to what cryptocurrencies aspire to be. It is true. You try to use a credit card or debit card to buy a sandwich today, the system takes a percent, half a percent, 50 cents away from the merchant. You try to use crypto to buy a sandwich today. I don't know where you can go in Washington to use a Bitcoin to buy a sandwich. Can't so the merchant takes a half a percent. That's not true. The merchant doesn't take a half a percent. Do you know how much money I get take, taken from me for uh, strength and conditioning for Square? Like three and a half percent, depending on whatever the transaction is, plus 50 cents here and there. Three and a half percent is much more than a half a percent that he's talking about. And then 
his arrogance comes out and he says, I don't know anywhere in Washington, D.C. that you can use a Bitcoin to buy a sandwich. Do we remember the guy that had X amount of Bitcoin that bought it with a, for a pizza pizza? Okay, that was years ago. Now, my crypto.com card, this little guy right here, my crypto.com card, I can go to any merchant anywhere and purchase whatever I want with cryptocurrency. I can buy whatever I want, okay? I can go to a restaurant. I can go to a bar. I can go to a grill. I can go to a store. And if I have value loaded on this card from my cryptocurrency investments, I can purchase that. So where's, where's, your, uh, where's, your, where's your thought process on this, Mr. Sherman? Can't be done at all. all. But someday. So we, uh, compared to what we hope crypto can do, to the problems that we face with fiat currencies now. That's not a fair comparison. Now, um, so I, w- I will uh, leave you to listen to the rest of that. He just talks about transaction fees from Coinbase, uh, withdrawal and deposit uh, stuff, that there's some discrepancies between 2% and 3%. Um, and he uses a flaw in his verbiage to make it seem worse than it is. Again, I talked about Square, traditional fiat currency payment processor taking 3.5% and Coinbase taking the 2% um, from the consumer. In any finance, you have to take some type of fee. What cryptocurrency is doing is minimizing those fees. And there's a reason why nobody uses Coinbase because of the fees. There are ways around this that you can get so that you don't have to go with Coinbase where are going to charge you those fees. So yes, I do agree that shit coins need to go away. Yes, I do agree that you should only invest in coins that have utility. But crypto as a whole can dupe the entire financial market as it is right now. And it's very important to see the, the positives that it can bring. So it is true that you can use cryptocurrencies to buy items. This 70-year-old gentleman just doesn't know He's just opening his first AOL dial-up account, let alone owning a crypto asset to actually purchase that and elevate your life. So that gets us back to term limits and all that stuff. But yes, there is ways that you can use your crypto to expose yourself to reality, to elevating your life through purchasing um, different items. So what's our thoughts around all this? I gave you two, two opposing arguments and two... Um, in favor arguments. So it's a very positive hearing for crypto. Is there going to be regulation that comes right now? No. We're not going to have this overriding regulation. I think this was a great way to expose all congressmen and congresswomen to the powers of crypto and to the negative aspects of crypto. There are ways that people can launder money. They haven't even got to NFTs. They haven't got to DeFi. I want you to think that uh, people that have invested in DeFi or NFTs or even just regular cryptocurrencies, we are so far ahead of the curve. So far ahead of the curve. They didn't even bring up DeFi where I'm getting 6,000%, 70,000% APY, APR on my assets. And so there's a long ways to go, but this is that first step. We also learned that Brian Brooks is a boss and Brian Brooks has done his research and truly believes in as an advocate of cryptocurrency. 
So early investors in DeFi nodes and staking are so far ahead of the curve where the government is right now that we can ream these benefits, that we can take these benefits on for as long as we possibly can. It would be asinine to say, hey, this may not work out in the future that I'm just going to, I'm just not going to touch it. It's something that you can use your own use your own opinion and your own research to form an opinion on the cryptocurrency market. And so what should regulation look like? We should have an, I, I believe we should have imp- implementation of KYC on all major exchanges. KYC is know your customer so that we can, that we can pinpoint people to a wallet address to see if there's any nefarious funds happening, if there's any money laundering happening. We should um, acquire the ability for USDC to be FDIC insured. This is going to absolutely catapult the market, catapult people putting trust into cryptocurrency. But the biggest thing is what I'm going to say next, is we need to establish USDC as the front runner for stablecoins. Before the pandemic, we were over 80% of reserves held in USDC as the major reserve currency. So other countries hold over 80% in the reserves of US dollars. Now, today, after the pandemic, we have dropped down to under 59%. Countries are losing trust in our US dollar. They're losing trust in it as a great, stable asset. So establishing USDC as the standard stablecoin will increase the holdings and trust of the U.S. dollar in different countries, reestablishing us as the one and only world reserve currency. We are still that to this day, but it is dwindling. The power is dwindling. The trust is dwindling. So USDC as a whole, I want to outline them as their network. There's over 1,339,410 wallet addresses that hold USDC. This is very important. This, this shows that we do have adoption, but it's not wide set enough yet. We have to have a major adoption with USDC, but this isn't even including USDT, where there is a large amount of addresses held as well. Just in the 24-hour volume from January, or excuse me, December 8th till 9th, we've had of volume through USDC. Has a circulating supply as of today of 39.98 billion, meaning they have that exact amount in one-to-one pegging of the U.S. dollars. They have that amount in reserves. So that is said, every single address, the 1,339,410 addresses said, hey, I want my USD back. They would be able to do that. And then this explains, this brings up the point of fractional reserve banking. And Mr. Allure brought this up in a very uh, educated way. Our traditional banks use what's called fractional reserve banking. So you, they take your money. I put in $10,000. They only have to hold 10% of that, and they can loan out the 90% to somebody else. So Colby Wartman puts in $10,000, and I get a 0.2% interest rate on my savings account. Then somebody comes in and wants to get a loan for a vehicle, a very expensive vehicle. 
$90,000. So they give them the $90,000. He takes that, but they're charging him 5% interest, whatever it is. So now they're giving me very minimal interest while they use my money to make more money off of him at a 5% interest rate. This is the problem with fractional reserve banking because when and if something catastrophic happens and people want to go get all of their money, it's not going to be there. They only have to keep 10% on hand. So this is a major, major issue when it comes to traditional finance and fractional reserve banking and the ability to establish USDC as the stablecoin will allow one, other countries to build trust in our, in our digital dollar. Two, will help increase the reserves for people to hold in different countries to be our global reserve currency, the U.S. dollar. And it will also ensure that we have this backing. We have this one-to-one pegging. We aren't going to take this money and make more money off of that just as traditional banks do in fractional reserve banking. And then we also, another regulation we need to get is we need to do away with coins with no utility. A lot of people would say, this is stupid. This is something that they don't want because people have made millions and billions of dollars on Shiba Inu and Dogecoin. But I truly think that if we can do away with this, we can have a more serious market for more investors to come into. This is very important. So getting away from these shit coins. And lastly, congressmen and women all talk about nefarious use and money laundering and terrorist groups that use cryptocurrency as a, as a haven to get money for their, uh, for their beliefs or to get money out and washed so that they do not have to pay taxes on that. And this is a very uneducated point from all of them because the blockchain is completely public. Every single transaction is recorded on a public ledger. This means that wherever this money goes, it is 100% traceable. And you can see exactly where it's going. And so their point to saying that people are using it as money laundering and X, Y, and Z is very invalid. But it brings up the bigger issue of is the government ready for blockchain? Is the government ready for blockchain? Are they ready to have all their assets, all their revenue, all their income, all their spending recorded on a public blockchain, on a public ledger that every single U.S. citizen can see? Are they ready for that? Are they morally just enough for that? And so there's this pushback because I, I, I don't think that the government is ready to have all of their dirty laundry shown and recorded on the blockchain, on a public ledger. So there's this pushback saying it's terrorist groups, it's money launderers. I don't think the government is ready for that. But it's a powerful step we have to take. So I hope that you guys got a lot of value from hearing these different congressmen and women talk and grill these CEOs because it really shows the use case of what cryptocurrencies can do. From here, I want you guys to check out Next Level Crypto as we continue to provide value and education, a community, a personalization to what you want in the crypto markets. We have a great community of people that we are educating to make their own financial decisions. 
um, with their with their money in the crypto markets. And it is a uh, fully loaded educational module of 50 plus hours of education. You have communication within the Discord and you have personalization as we help guide you in a way that you want to set up your portfolio best for you. So we deliver the education, we deliver the personalization, and we deliver the communication you need to make the best educated choice in the crypto markets. So check out Next Level Crypto on our Instagram. Check out Next Level Crypto at coach underscore Wartman, and we will provide you the value that you guys need and the education you need to make great personal financial decisions on your own and hopefully elevate your lives in this ever-changing cryptocurrency market. So that is the end of Next Level Radio. If you have questions, please reach out. DM us. We will get you the answers you need. And you guys have a wonderful day. We will see you next week on Next Level Radio.